Shut up and sit down. Hello strangers and welcome to the latest episode of Strangers in a Cinema. I'm one of the co-hosts Paul Anderson here tonight again as ever with co-host Pete Wall. Pete, how are you today? You look a bit tired, I'll be honest. <laughs> Mate, I am so tired. So very tired. I, I went to bed relatively late last night. I had work to do. Then I had to get up about 6.15 in the morning. Um, I had some work to do early doors and then I went to an absolutely killer fitness class uh, about 9 o'clock. That wiped me out for the day. But then I had to carry on with work and responsibilities and such. I've got through to this time, which is we're recording at half past nine at night. And I feel like bed would be around the corner if I didn't have to carry on working after this show is recorded. <laughs> so yeah, all in all, man, I've got to get my second win soon because otherwise we're in trouble. So I'll try to get it during the record of the show. That'd be good, right? That would be good. Yeah. I'd, yeah. I mean, I'm glad you're here. It's good to have you. If you if I see you falling asleep at any point in the show, obviously, I'll give you a, I'll give you a, a poke on Facebook because those things are current these days, <laughs> aren't they? Uh, that should wake you up. <laughs> Yeah, if I'm being silent, I've either fallen asleep or I'm just brooding really hard on like a point that you've made <laughs> and readying my comeback, my response. But yeah, it's an interesting time to be recording, isn't it, Paul? Because we're coming off the back of the Academy Awards, the Oscars that took place late on Sunday night. I know that you stayed up for the long haul, right? I did stay up for the long haul, yeah. It wasn't all... I think it was I think it was 4.30, I think I got to bed, um, which is quite late, in, in all honesty. Um, I think it's the... I, it's not the first time I stayed up for it. I stayed up for it when Return of the King swept the board, however many years ago that was. But we were drinking at that point, so that was easier. But yeah, we're doing it without drinking and on your own. In the middle of the ceremony, I was a bit tired, I'll be honest. But I made it through. I bored everyone on Twitter with my very lifeless live tweets. So yeah, that was good fun. <laughs> Lovely stuff. Lovely stuff. Though that is, yeah, the kind of hard work that we expect from anybody involved in the Strangers in the Cinema name. So nice. Uh, for newcomers to this show, if there are newcomers listening to this for the first time, to explain, our show is broken down into sections. Those sections tend to hang off one or two feature reviews, big meaty reviews where Paul and I discuss films that we've both seen in some detail. That will come a bit later on. Before that, we have a few other sections. We have coming attractions where we preview this weekend's new releases, upcoming new releases. Before that, we also have a section called Popcorn Movies, where we talk generally about movies that each one of us has seen in the last seven days or so. And before all of that, and just about right now, we have a section called In the Foyer, in which we discuss stuff from the world of film, news-wise. But Paul, it's got to be the Academy Awards this week, right? Uh, yeah. Uh, as I said, we, we were talking last week where we kind of, I was decided that I didn't care because I think a lot of things got snubbed. And then I found myself sitting up for it and, you know, getting quite excited. Um, and to be fair, with what took home the big prize, with Bong Joon-ho, the man of the moment, taking home uh, the, a lot of the big prizes, certainly Parasite did very, very well. Um, I did let out an audible cheer when uh, when it won Best Picture, to be honest, and hopefully didn't wake up the wife, but uh, I didn't get in too much trouble for that. So, uh, yeah, as much as we claim we're not interested, I got quite excited about it when in the moment. So, yeah, it's, you know, it is a pretty big deal. What, whatever you think of them, it is a pretty big deal this time of year in film, for sure. Yeah, and I would say, I mean, this one, I, I mean, maybe I'm being a bit rose tinted but I thought it's a pretty good ceremony as far as Oscar ceremonies go right like uh, yeah you had a slightly different perspective because you had to drag yourself you know keeping your eyes pinned open until 4 30 <laughs> in the morning whereas I watched it later when I was maybe a little bit more you know fully functional and awake but um I, what do you think I mean ceremony wise before we get into some of the other winners and losers 
how did you feel it was in terms of sort of entertainment value and keeping you interested in between the actual awards? I think it's kind of 50-50 split for me, really. I think, um, well, it's the lowest TV rated ceremony ever, but then that, I mean, I don't, I don't know if that counts for people streaming it or not. So um, obviously less and less people are watching it, but then I guess you can get the results on the internet, so that may happen anyway. But yeah, that that aside, in terms of the quality of the show, I thought the opening, the opener from Janelle Monae was superb. I really enjoyed that. Some of the... Um, the references to a lot of the films that I considered that got snubbed was quite nice as well. Whether that was deliberate or not, I don't know. Uh, but yeah, that she had some awesome film-related costumes. The midsummer floral dress was a was a standout for me on that one. Um, so that was really really good. Um, as was Cynthia Erivo's performance of stand up. I really that I thought that was great. Um, not. I'm not as taken by the random appearance of Eminem doing Lose Yourself, but each to their own, I guess. And he's, he's got his fans. It is a song from a film, yeah. I guess, but it just seems a little bit bizarre. <laughs> yeah, it was, a, it was a funny one, that one, because, yeah, Eminem just dropped a record. Um, you can listen to it if you want, but, I mean, that's on you. Um, at the same time, the film 8 Mile, from which Lose Yourself is taken, is hardly, you know, the highest calibre no. <laughs> of movie. It's like some of the other movies that they put in that montage that led into the Eminem performance were like these beloved classic yeah. movies, you know, starting off with The Breakfast Club and uh, and going forward from there. And then you've got 8 Mile and like, no offence, but like, who really thinks about that movie? Right, it's it was it's fine. It was kind of it captured the zeitgeist, I guess, when it came out because he was massive at that point. Um, yeah, it, I'm, I'm totally with you. Like, it's a it's an okay film. Like, this this, this is not bad by a long stretch. But in terms of will it be remembered, you know, in 30, 40 years time, I highly doubt yeah. it. Like, so yeah, it just seemed like a bizarre pick to go. Oh, we've got this classic song from this classic film, and it's like, no, well, that's not really what that no, is. No, the <laughs> the only reason that that. Uh, film comes into my mind now is because Denzel Curry dropped a line on his last or last but one record about B Rabbit from Eight Mile. But apart from like other rappers mm. referencing it, it feels yeah. Anyway, if forty some year old Eminem did that song that we remember from when we were teenagers and that happened, Marty Scorsese looked like he wanted out. To be honest, at that point. He did, yeah. Um, yeah but sure. Scorsese certainly was pulled around by the fact that Bong Joon-ho, you mentioned, has been really the big winner of the night, uh, gave such a touching tribute to Scorsese, talking about how he was inspired by him, studied him as he was a young filmmaker coming up from the time that he was looking to make things like Memories of Murder back in the day. So, yeah, th that stuff was really cool, I think. The kind of um, a couple of directors or filmmakers who paid tribute to other filmmakers in a way that wasn't maybe a sort of cringy and sort of cheesy as sometimes that can be yeah absolutely and i think bong joon ho came across as quite a charming charming man to be fair i think he, he did himself he did himself a lot of favors i think uh and his i think the drink till morning thing has kind of stuck with me to be honest so i can imagine the after party probably got quite hectic yeah to be honest. It's... um but no it was yeah it was great to, but it was great to see parasite win everything that it won to yeah be fair. Um, it's well, let's let's just take a little whistle stop tour through some of the runners and riders here in the actual event and then like who won some categories and just anything that stood out. So Joaquin Phoenix took actor in a leading role. Surprise or no for you? No, I think that's I think that's fair. I think that is certainly the best thing about that film is by far is Joaquin Phoenix's performance. So um, I think that's fair. Not a surprise and re relatively well deserved. I think. Yeah, I mean, I went when we did the top five last week, I went for Antonio Banderas as one of my top picks for this award but that was more in hope than expectation you know I think it's a great performance yeah. I don't think I think it's a bit underseen pain, pain and glory compared certainly to the Joker so or Joker I should say 
Anyway, um, yes, what else have we got? Uh, actor in a supporting role went to Brad Pitt for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Uh, thoughts? Uh, I it, It's a great performance. I think that's one of the, I think when I tweeted out, I think it's one of the highlights of a film that I that is very, very well made that I didn't like a lot. Um, but And Brad Pitt's performance, I think, is the highlight of that film. Um, for me, though, I'd have quite liked it to go to Joe Pesci for The Irishman because I thought he was great in that and incredibly understated compared to what he normally is. So, yeah, for me, I'd have gone with Joe Pesci, but Brad Pitt, it was a great performance. Yeah, I, I basically agree with you. I mean, maybe less hot on the Joe Pesci thing, but I, then I was just less hot on The Irishman, I guess. Uh, but, yeah, mm. I, I, I like Brad Brad Pitt in in that movie quite a lot, even though both of us had you know some reservations. I think to to put it lightly about that particular film. Um, <laughs> performance by an actress in a leading role went to uh, Renee Zellweger, of course. And Renee Zellweger unfortunately went up after Joaquin Phoenix and tried to do a sort of Joaquin Phoenix esque State of the Union address about I don't know like a lot of different themes, and it kind of all fizzled out and felt a little bit embarrassing by the end. But what do you think about her winning? Have you seen Judy, Paul? I haven't seen Judy. Neither have I. To be fair, it's it's a biopic, and I'm not a huge. It's not a genre I rush to see, which I think we've talked about on the show before. Um, I don't know. I don't. I can't. Having not seen it, I can't say whether she deserves it or not. I'd have liked it to have gone to probably Saoirse Ronan, I guess, mm. um, because she's an actress that I, I rate very highly. Um, but having not seen it, it's kind of difficult to judge, really. Yeah. I think that's the one nominated film that I didn't get to. Right. Anyway, so. I re-watched um, Little Women at the cinema the other day. And so, yeah, it's up there in my mind that, yeah, Saoirse Ronan's so great in that. And it's a shame, but she will win many an award in the future. I have no doubt about that. Uh, Actress in a supporting role went to my girl, Laura Dern, for Marriage Story. I mean, I can't be mad at that at all. Um, Having, though, both of us, I think, picked the same person, which was Florence Pugh for Little Women when we did our top five last week. The the Laura Dern performance, though, is not making you angry as the uh, award winner, I presume. No, absolutely not. I think it's a good performance. I just think Florence Pugh's performance was better. Um, But, yeah, you know, I'm not going to begrudge Laura Dern an Oscar. She's an incredible actress um, and seems like a very lovely lady so work more power um, to her yeah a bit of a shame for me was and again sort of unsurprising but a bit of a shame was that i lost my body lost out in animated feature to toy story 4 which is hardly a shocker but i just felt like as much as i really liked and i think you really liked toy story 4 uh i think i lost my body takes more risks does things that are maybe a little bit more out there a little bit more challenging and it would have been nice to see that get Oscar recognition. I think you, you can imagine. Yeah, I mean, it, I think it would have added to my joy that if that had won Best Animated Picture as well as Parasite winning what it had won, that would have been like the icing on an already already That's tasty true, cake. But we live in an imperfect <laughs> world, so what can we do? Uh, and just one more, I guess we won't go through every single award here. But um, Roger Deakins got his due for 1917 as cinematographer, which was something that I think you called on the well, not called as a prediction, but at least you were in support of when you made your list. Last last week right yeah absolutely um i think yeah 1917 is technically it's a superb film and he he absolutely deserves he seems like a lovely Um, fellow as well doesn't he when he went up to do his his speech i I really appreciated that i thought it was great yeah yeah so no well deserved and then what the best director went to bong Joon ho great well deserved i think and then best picture to parasite i think would you agree with that with anything else 
you think maybe should have got a looking over and above it? I personally don't think no, so. No, but... I mean, I don't, man. Like, I'm I'm all for it. I'm all for the fact that we didn't have to have this weird sort of um, artificial separation between... Um, what are they calling it now? It's not foreign language film. The best international, international feature. International feature, right. And, and I yeah. liked that Bong acknowledged the fact that the category had been changed. It was almost like a new category. And at that point, he hadn't got best picture. He didn't know he got best picture. So he was sort of um, appreciative of the fact that he was the inaugural winner of essentially a new Academy Award, which I thought was good because it's sort of broadening that award out a little bit and not focusing so much on language and more on something a bit more unified in terms of a, a production from somewhere on the earth more. So, I mean, it almost feels yeah. like you could just do away with it and accept that, you know, <laughs> films could all be created somewhat equally around the world. But, you know, we can we can hope. And it's nice to see a guy like Bong Joon-ho being acknowledged in multiple categories. So there's nothing to complain about from my point of view. No, absolutely. And I think, yeah, I think it's a deserving winner. I think it's one of the most, there are other good films on that list, but I think Parasite is one of the most original films I've seen in a while. But we'll get to that later. when we Indeed we will. Well, let's jump out of this section for now then. Obviously, if anybody watched the Oscars and has particularly strong opinions about it, get in touch. Let us know. Did you enjoy it? Were you bored to tears? Did you stay up till 4 or 30 in the morning like Paul over there? Um, and yeah, probably we will come back to the topic at some point in the future because these films are going to live on with us. Not least because we're talking about Parasite later in the show, as you say, Paul. But we will be back in just a moment with the section of the show that we call Popcorn Movies, right after this. So, yeah, Popcorn Movies. Um, we explained this at the top of the show, so I'm not going to explain it again. Uh, what have I been watching this week? Uh, I watched a film I've been meaning to catch up with for a while, and I think it's destined to become something of a cult classic. Um, this is One Cut of the Dead, which is a Japanese um, zombie film, I guess. Uh, basically, the, so the premise of this is the film The film opens uh, and they are filming... You see, basically see the first half an hour of the film is a zombie film, um, is a zombie film in a sort of a, well it's a live tv episode for a for a horror channel so you actually see the the film they put out if that makes sense Are you mm -hmm. following me here and then the then it goes backwards and then the rest of the film shows you how they actually made the film and how the film was put together like but it's still done in a narrative structure does that yeah. make sense i've not explained that particularly well but it's brilliant uh basically i'll, I'll cut to the chase it's such a clever it's such a clever idea it works remarkably well um and it is just a love letter to zero budget filmmaking like some of the creativity like the, at one point the, the camera crane breaks everyone sort of everyone stands on people's shoulders in like a human pyramid so they can get the closing shot that they need and you get you get a real sense of the tension because basically the reason it's called one cut of the dead is because the the tv show they're putting out is filmed in one take not too dissimilar to 1917 that mm. kind of approach um so they have but they're doing a live broadcast so they have to do this thing they have to get it right first time. There's no sort of do-overs. There's no take-backs. And what you see in the second half of the film is the, is what the process they went through to make that. And it's it's brilliant. It's very very. It's a very charming film. It's very very funny in places. And as I said, anyone with any interest in in the process that goes into filmmaking um, should check it out. So. Yeah, that's um, directed by Shin Ichiro Ueda. Uh, and probably butchered where, his where name is there, it but... available? I watched it on Blu-ray, so it's out and about. Um, so it's pretty widely available to rent, I think. Um, but yeah, it's a, it's as I said, it's a it's a love letter to zero budget filmmaking, and it's very enjoyable. So I de definitely recommend you checking that out if you haven't seen it. It's quite a tight, eighty nine minutes as well, I think. So it's not even very long. So yeah, it's very very good. Check it out. That's one cut of the day. Nice. Dead. Uh, one that you can check out in a very short time frame is uh, a bit of. 
bit of David Lynch, a little bit of an injection of David Lynch out there on Netflix. Turns out that the new David Lynch short comedy crime drama, What Did Jack Do?, was actually completed in 2017. It's a 2017 production, but has just come to light uh, through Netflix distribution, I suppose, uh, what, last month? So... I think it came out on Lynch's birthday, right. if I remember rightly. I might right, wrong, and but. so this one is basically, um, it, for, for Lynch fans, you will recognise the central character in this other, or opposite David Lynch himself, who has a key role as a detective, is a monkey. And that monkey is, of course, the homeless woman's monkey from the end of Inland Empire. Um, that monkey in this short film can speak like a human person with a very sort of disconcerting human mouth superimposed within its facial frame. Uh, And the monkey is being interrogated by Mr. David Lynch himself. I mean, this is an oddity. It's really weird. It's David Lynch having sort of fun uh, doing comedy, but without letting on that that's what he's doing oftentimes. (laughs) It's 300% Lynch, I think, is how I describe it. Yeah, I I tried to put some sort of notes down after I saw it. And the first term that came to mind is uh, idiom tennis. He does this thing where in the exchange between Lynch the detective and the monkey, it's like they're trying to throw out every English idiom that they've ever encountered or people (laughs) will have ever encountered. Um, And then uh, lines like this one come through in this film where I just kind of stopped and went back and listened to it again because it's kind of injected directly into my veins when you say things like I once sliced a gator that was going after a rabbit friend there was blood everywhere um yeah not for everybody but if you are a fan of Lynch if you're a fan certainly of Inland Empire and if you're a fan of talking monkeys get on board son uh this one 17 minutes of your time what did Jack do I I really liked it I was made me really happy uh that yeah available on netflix now paul what else have you got uh so this is miss americana um for those of you not aware of what this is this is a documentary uh about taylor swift uh directed by lana wilson um and kind of is was trailered as almost this like all access no holds barred you're going to get to see like a real insight into into taylor swift who i've seen live i hasten to add and the show was incredible um so i am yeah i'm a fan i guess with yeah I, i would say so so i've got into this like kind of wanting to know a bit more um and I ended up pretty disappointed if I'm honest I was kind of I didn't what I didn't expect was to get something that felt very very manufactured um very at times very staged and you didn't really get that many sort of that much intimate access to her or any particular I mean there's a handful of candid scenes that are quite good when she's talking about the um the sexual harassment trial um and things that are close to her heart when she's kind of talking about why she decided to speak out about politics and that kind of thing that there's some good bits in it but a lot of it does feel like like the sort of stage dinners with her friend where they're you know it just it looks very much like they've just invited a friend around and filmed a stage dinner in all honesty so yeah i i was disappointed with this i expected it to be a bit more interesting than it was and i found it to be in parts a little bit boring in parts it was all right and but i can't i can't fully recommend this one as a as a as a great yeah i mean you can't have been stunned when like multi-bazillion no. <laughs> selling pop icon taylor swift had a production that was put out there with maybe pr in mind rather than access. no but i mean maybe yeah maybe maybe i should have measured my expectations uh, although Paul, than I did, you've but... got to win some kind of award for popcorn movies this week because you've gone with what you've described as a love letter to zero budget filmmaking followed by a documentary yeah. about taylor swift i mean those couldn't be more different in terms of uh, no, what you're taking true. in it's been an eclectic week for me yeah, yeah. F- film consumption over there is a broad 
church, you're taking in a lot of things and that's what keeps it fresh and spicy on the show. Yeah, I like it. The next yeah. one I've got, Paul, is one I think you've also seen. Um, this is A Beautiful Day in the Neighbourhood and uh, Tom Hanks' vehicle, Tom Hanks playing Mr. Rogers, if I'm not mistaken, who is this like yes. uh, sort of family name, um, household name, I should say, in American culture, but not in British culture, right? Like, I didn't grow up with Mr. Rogers. No, I, I had no idea who he was, to be honest, um, until I sat down in front of this yeah, film. Yeah, it's, so. it's only because, I guess, I've had one or two American friends who've brought him up as a sort of cultural touchstone that I was kind of aware of who this guy was and have maybe seen like clips from his show um but yeah what we've got here is uh, mario uh, marielle i should say heller the director of um oh the melissa mccarthy movie about forging signatures and letters that one yeah yep I've completely forgotten what that's called as well, but I know yeah, what you mean. Diary yeah. of a Teenage Girl as well, I think she made um, with Belle Powley. But yeah, anyway, uh, directing this... Can You Ever Forgive Can You me? Ever Forgive Me, I think is right, yeah. yeah. Uh, directing this thing, which is Tom Hanks embodying Mr. Rogers, who is this person who seems to be sort of... Um, an embodiment of like pure light and humanity and empathy and care. He seems to meet everybody with the same level of compassion in a way that's quite um, disarming, particularly for the journalist from Esquire magazine played by Matthew Reese, who goes to interview him to try to do this piece, quite reluctantly try and do a piece. I don't think he's really that keen on having to do a uh, a big spread on Mr. Rogers, but uh, finds himself almost like uh, being therapized I guess by this guy who seems to look right into his soul and open him up as a character and make him reflect on the influences of his childhood and how they've changed him as a man and made him what he is today and left him maybe a bit battered and a bit bruised and a bit damaged and all the while we're kind of thinking like is there a crack in the veneer is there something about mr rogers where we're gonna finally find out that he like us is human and is uh, jealous and is weak at times and can be badly uh, influenced and i think you do get some of that and you do get a little peek behind that curtain and i found that dynamic particularly with a strong performance from matthew reese like really quite engaging here although i would say as a whole this film sort of washed over me. It was a bit of like a warm bath of a movie rather than something that I feel strongly about. I don't know about you. What was your feeling, Paul? Yeah, I'm kind of with you, to be honest. I think it was, it's it's fine. Um, it, it's enjoyable enough. I think it helped. Hanks elevates it, I think, for sure. Because I think his performance is great here. Um, and there's some nice visual, there's some nice visual flourishes. We're using sort of little model work for the, the exterior shots mm. of the city and that kind of thing. So there's some nice... There's some nice touches, certainly, certainly here, but yeah, I can't. It's a film that I can imagine slipping from my memory um, within, within the course of a few months, unfortunately, as much as I enjoyed it. Yeah, while I was in yeah, it. I'm with you. I mean, I think, like I say, the thing that I found appealing about it is this line uh, that Hanks delivers when he explains that the way that he is is not um, easy. It doesn't come easily or doesn't come naturally. It's a practice. And I suppose reflecting on that myself, uh, you think about that in your life, right? Like, what kind of a personality do I put that out there? How do I present myself? And how much am I actually working on improving what it is that I put out into the world? So from that point of view, I think it's a sort of stimulating character study. But yeah, like you, Paul, I think 
I, I may, other than a few isolated moments and what I said before, like Matthew Reese, who is a Welsh actor, but here is a flawless uh, performer with the American accent. Um, not loads else about it. It's going to live too long in the memory, maybe. I yeah, kind I of felt fair. the same yeah. way about her last movie, though. Can you ever forgive me? Like, I thought while I was watching it, it was a really lovely piece of work. It was really well constructed. The performances were strong. And then I forget sometimes the title of the film, for example, today or like <laughs> too much about it. So, yeah, I, I think Mario Heller is a good film director. And I think these are a great, you know, good to great pieces of work. But maybe just haven't grabbed me in the way that I, I thought perhaps they would. Mm, I think yeah, I think all of that's fair. To be honest, I'm kind of with you. I think on that. Um, for me, the last one I wanted to talk about this week is I watched The Fifth Element again. I fucking love The Fifth Element. It's one of my all-time favorite sci-fi films. Just probably sitting just behind Empire Strikes Back um, and anything with a lightsaber in it. Um, yeah, The Fifth Element. I think is it's best on at the peak of his powers. I think it's such a such an uncompromising individual vision um, that that hasn't dated that badly. To be honest, even though it's 1997. I mean, some of the CGI in it is is a bit basic as you'd expect not all of it's aged incredibly well but for the most part i think that the film has aged well um and just still looks fantastic like the the set pieces are brilliant the whole film is kept me absolutely glued, glued to the screen from start to finish um everyone's great in it the 4k disc as well just looks absolutely stunning if anyone is interested yeah. in that side of things it does yeah, look Paul, amazing not to bring um, down the tone but that's not <laughs> the only thing that looks absolutely stunning in the fifth element let's be let's be frank no. about this uh mila jovovich is is a electric in that thing and 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 yeah a, yeah a large part of that is probably due to the fact that her her main sort of iconic outfit is essentially made out of bandages yeah yeah absolutely i mean the whole film looks beautiful to be fair like and i just love i love the set pieces this the space opera scene is one of my absolute favorite scenes um in any film and i just love i just love the fifth element it's just an absolute blast from start to finish like the the concept's incredible i said it looks great the production design is amazing it's a film that feels like no other and it's kind of a shame that he didn't manage to emulate he didn't manage to emulate more of the fifth element in um the film that valerian. i've completely forgotten the title of valerian yeah yeah which is you know looked great but i think lacked the substance that fifth element's got so um yeah fifth element for me absolutely one of my favorite films uh of all time um and it's great so if you haven't seen it watch it <laughs> there you go uh well that takes yeah. us then to the end of popcorn <laughs> movies which means that we'll bounce out for a second and we'll be back with the section of the show called coming attractions previewing films coming out over the coming weekend right after this So yeah, this is the section of the show where we talk about what's coming out this weekend. So we're recording on a Thursday. So this is films that drop tomorrow, which is, which well, tomorrow to us is Valentine's Day at this point. So, um, and that will lead into our top five later on, of course. Um, but yeah, Pete, what have we got coming well, up on well, Friday? Well, what a Valentine's gift we've got. First of all, Paul Anderson, we have Sonic the Hedgehog. <laughs> this <laughs> Valentine's Day, you and your beloved can go and encounter not only Sonic the Hedgehog, but whatever remains of the cracked psyche of Jim Carrey. Paul, did you see Jim Carrey on Graham Norton this week? No, I've heard. Is this the awkward Margot okay. Robbie? It's thing. two things, Paul. It's two things. Right. <laughs> One of them has been much publicised, which is, yes, this weird thing where Kerry turns to Margot Robbie, says something sort of um, fairly affectionate about, you know, I'm really glad that I could meet you because I'm a really big admirer of your work, turns it into a joke saying, well, it's amazing that you've come this far with all your obvious physical disadvantages. Feels like he's kind of got away with that as a joke. Like people can take it, you know, in good humour. Then... Yeah 
tags the joke by saying, oh yeah, that's just pure talent right there, which felt kind of weird and spiteful. But then after that, so I thought like Jim Carrey's being odd and I feel a bit, yeah, ill at ease with it then tells this story about being in Hawaii and being told that a missile was going to strike and he had 30 minutes to live, which, okay, Paul, I was very tired. I shed a tear whilst he was telling this story. Jim Carrey is a, is, is a like, fascinating, but also rather strange man at this point. And he's attached himself to this property, Sonic the Hedgehog. You're a video gamer, Paul. You're a game guy. You're down with the kids and the games. Have you got any any like uh positive hope about sonic the hedgehog i mean they redesigned sonic which is good because uh, if people aren't aware then they the original characters when they released uh people hated uh they went back to the drawing board and redesigned sonic to actually make him look like sonic the hedgehog uh a guy my colleague of mine has a theory that they did this whole thing deliberately just to build uh just to put this film in the headlines more which you know is would be quite a clever marketing tactic um yeah i can't say i'm gonna see this though to be honest it is i mean it's, it doesn't look like it's for me I like the Sonic games a lot. I enjoy them; they're great games. But I, I, it's not there's not enough, I think, for me to make this work as a film. But it remains to be seen. So, um, just to, to well, I need to hype you up with these uh, coming attractions. I think so. In the director's chair, Paul, we got Jeff Fowler. You know your boy, Jeff Fowler. Jeff Fowler, <laughs> I love this. Is from a place called Normal in Illinois. <laughs> so for for yes. a start, and then uh, Jeff Fowler has made one directorial feature this one sonic the hedgehog but previously directed a short called gopher broke that's gopher broke it's about a gopher paul it's about a gopher and it's a pun um yeah i don't know that the marketing genius of redesigning sonic and pissing everyone off is actually going to lead to anything other than the inevitable bad reviews low box office receipts and everybody forgetting about this one very very quickly yeah. <laughs> i mean the trailer's do not look promising. No. They they showed on the same episode of the Graham Norton thing that I'm talking about, they showed a clip as they do to try and get people enticed into going to whatever the person's flogging at the time. And it was Jim Carrey doing a crazy dance for the whole sequence. And it just, no, just no. I mean, one or both of us will see this in our sort of line of duty for this show, but yeah, absolutely. But yeah. boy, oh boy, I'm not looking forward to it. I might have to, I don't know, be super high or something. I don't. There must be a way to enjoy Sonic the Hedgehog. I'll go. It's fine. Well, yeah, I still haven't seen Doolittle, so I need to tick that off my list before I do Sonic. But yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know that I can do both of those things. You might be a braver man than me. Um, next, then, Paul. Let's get back to sort of a more like a real movie, I guess. Uh, this one, Emma. Emma with a full stop in the title uh, emma full stop is the uh, autumn de wild adaptation or screen version latest screen version of the jane austen uh ip i guess uh, this one starring uh, anya taylor joy who i love very dearly um the trailer looked not so promising i think uh, not least because Miranda Hart popped up near the end. But what are your levels of expectation here, Paul, with Emma? It looks like a kind of quirky take on this material. 
I think I'll either love love or hate this. Um, based on the trailer, it doesn't really. I didn't think it looked great based on the trailer. I haven't seen any kind of early buzz or anything like that. And I'm totally with you on the Miranda situation as well. So, uh, yeah, I completely agree on that one. Um, yeah, I will see this. I think for sure. Well, I imagine we'll feature review it next week. So, um, yeah, I think it's it's in, I think it'll be interesting to see what Anya Taylor Joy does with this kind of role because this isn't the kind of thing we normally see her in. So it's nice to see her kind of breaking out of genre pictures, I guess, um, moving kind of away from horror and maybe to more. Or more mainstream bankable films so i hope for her sake it does well um in terms of box office returns because it could be her breakout film um so yeah but i rem- i'm not i remain to be convinced on the basis of the trailer that i will enjoy it yeah we've got some other like sort of ridiculously beautiful people in this johnny flynn who annoyed everyone by doing cine world adverts for about two years but the guy who was in beast um and and used to be an indie singer oh, yeah, i'm yeah. led to believe mia goth of course who is uh, shia labeouf's other half um and it was in high life last year and was it was really good there so yeah there's there's reasons to be interested i think cast wise and Andy taylor joy man is just like so magnetic i think as a screen presence that like I'm in whatever she's doing. So just hoping that it's above average. Currently 73 meta score for Emma. So that's promising, I think. Mm, yeah, absolutely. Um, I have got one more for you, Paul. This one, a bit of a smaller release. It might be the trickiest one to track down. This one, A Guide to Second Date Sex. The reason it's here, it's a comedy romance from director Rachel Herons. But the main draw, I guess, is the fact that we've got George McKay or George Mackay in the leading role, of course, who was so good in 1917. So, um, yeah, I can tell you this much. Laura and Ryan have been totally destroyed by previous relationships. In the hope of getting it right this time, they go out on a second date, having no idea on what they're supposed to do. George McKay in a rom-com, Paul. Your feelings? Uh, I'm intrigued. I, my yeah, I, I'm in, I'm intrigued. This, to be honest, this is the first I've heard of this film when you brought it up today. So I know very little about this. Um, yeah, I like George McKay as an actor. I think, as you say, he was good in 1917. So um, yeah, if I can find this, I probably will. Well, I don't think. I think, as you say, it's going to be quite difficult to find. So yeah, no, I'm on, I'm on board with with the prince with the concept of this one. So I will catch it at some yeah, point. Yeah, good luck to him. Man. Yeah, good luck to him. He's got a branch out. I think he's a really good actor. And yeah, he's got to you know put his finger in a few different pies, so to speak. That's a weird thing to have. Said said there uh but yeah (laughs) the tiredness is catching up (laughs) yeah it really is man i'm getting lucid today i can i'm gonna say all sorts when we get to the feature reviews uh but anyway yeah that one is a guide to second date sex which is also releasing on feb 14th which is just tomorrow or about the time when this podcast goes live so um yeah any and all of those are available for your perusal maybe avoid sonic the hedgehog but you know make your own choices you're probably an adult Um, That brings us to the end of the coming attractions section, which means, Paul, very exciting news on the horizon. We are going to come back with not one, but two feature reviews, beginning with a review of this year's best picture, best international picture and best directorial uh, work, which is Parasite, right after this. So yeah, as you said, I'm very excited to talk about this. Bong Joon-ho is one of my, uh, certainly one of my favourite directors. I think the only film I haven't seen of his, I still haven't caught up with Memories of a Murder. Um, but aside from that, uh, I, I haven't, he hasn't made a bad film in my opinion. I love Snowpiercer, I love Doctor. Um, so yeah, the, my anticipation going into this was very high. It's fair Did to you say. see The Host? <laughs> yeah, because yes. that must be so, yeah, the host is a it lot must of fun. be right yeah. in your wheelhouse, The Host, surely. 
Oh yeah, totally. Yeah, no, I love the host. I haven't seen it for a few years actually. I need to watch it again. But yeah, I remember very much enjoying it. It's bonkers. It is. Uh, it's currently <laughs> on Mubi. Um, the host oh, and Mother has just gone up on movie as well, so they're doing a bit of a Mother's thing great. To, I really like that film to acknowledge yeah. his work. But yeah, okay, so let's dive into this and set this up a little bit. So the movie from Bong Joon Ho that everybody's talking about that if you haven't seen it, you've certainly heard about it, not least because of all the Oscar buzz and then Oscar uh, accolades that it's received. It is the story of a poor family living in Seoul, uh, in South Korea, called the Kims, who effectively weasel their way into the lives of another family, the Parks. The Parks being themselves very wealthy, well-to-do people who live way up in the sort of uh, hillsides, uh, like like the Korean equivalent of the Hollywood Hills, I guess, uh, in this plush, decadent home. It's all glass. It's all uh, uh, like brushed metal and beautiful surfaces. And the way in which the Kim family get into the Park family, so to speak, is through, first of all, their son getting a job as a replacement tutor for one of the members of the family, from which point his sister gets in on the act and eventually so do his parents. Um, there's an awful lot to talk about, and I don't want to sort of lay out the entire plot of the film as a setup. No, I think we need to be wary to avoid spoilers on this one, because the less you know, really, I think that's enough yeah. to go yeah. in with. Yeah, but needless fairness. to say, the film is concerned with the disparities between these two strata of Korean society and the ways in which their relative positions in society drive their actions and their... Um, yeah, their, their course of action as the as the film progresses. Before I fall over myself with this description, let's hear a little clip. So where yeah, where do we start then on, on Parasite? Anything you wanna anything you wanna open up with? I mean there's 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 a lot to talk about, there's a lot to unpick on this one. Um, yeah, I, but where where do you think is a good jumping I off? I think point there's for us? there's basically like two clear sectors here. Uh, one of them being sort of the the text and one of them being the subtext. I mean, I think first of all, maybe we can talk generally about like things like performances and direction, and then we can maybe dig a little bit more into what the film might be about or what we took away from it. So like starting with what's actually there on screen for everybody to see, you've said in the lead in there, Paul, that you're a big fan of this director already. Bong Joon-ho has made some great pieces of work to date. And so expectations, I think for both of us were high going in. This film, I'm presuming for you, stands up to his previous work in terms of direction, in terms of craft, in terms of just the way the thing is presented before we get into anything else, right? Yeah, absolutely. It's just, it's beautifully shot. It's beautifully lensed. Um, the film looks incredible from start to finish. And I think there's there's something almost um, Hitchcockian um, in this and certainly the way of the, the house is designed. Apparently, I was reading some of the other day, apparently they built the house on a soundstage. So it's not actually... 
um so it's not actually a, a property as such um and like the the layout of the house the house almost becomes a character in this film i think mm. um sort of increasingly as the film goes on like the layout of the house becomes increasingly important without drifting into spoiler territory um but yeah i think it's something that's cocky in 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 that in the way that this film's structured in parts would you agree or yeah yeah for sure i mean the the whole um the hitchcock comparison i think is good i mean you've got everywhere you look with this house as compared to the dwellings which are this kind of um semi-subterranean level the um what do you call that there's a name for that isn't there the weather the poorer family live it's like a not a basement like a semi-basement uh, yeah effectively the the poorer <laughs> yeah. family here can look out and look up at the world they can see the sky they can see the street they can see the world going by but then the counterpoint to that is this other family who are way up there on the hill looking down on everyone else quite literally looking down on everyone else and in between we often take journeys in this film with characters going to tutor for example when we first get into this uh, you know opulent home and it's all uphill walks and staircases and once you get into the house we've got more staircases it's yeah. like bong has done this this really nice um job of giving us a lot of visual clues about what his concerns are here without having to overstate those things early on so you already get an idea i mean thinking about a film like snowpiercer snowpiercer for mm. a lot of people might appear to be uh, just a very enjoyable action movie, genre action movie. And I'm all good with that. But at the same time, when you look at how the director frames his work and where he frames his work, I should say, you're very aware that something else is going on. And maybe we'll talk more about that as we go forward. Um, performances wise as well, Paul, particular standouts for you? I, I really thought everyone was great. <laughs> Genuinely, um, I don't think I could pick a standout if I tried. To be honest, I think they—they they all the family, like the 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 poorer family, are, are brilliant. Um, their kind of their chemistry, the way they bounce off each other, I think is great. Um, yeah, I I can't really pick a highlight. I think everyone was great here. Um, yeah, as much as I'd of like. Of course, to. Uh, Kang Ho Song, who is the father in the family, is this icon of of Korean uh, film and has been working with Bong since like Memories of Murder back in what the early 2000s 2002 something like that mm. and I mean at the Academy Awards seeing that guy he just seems like the happiest man in the world like I'm sure I'm sure some of that has to do with all the accolades and all the attention that the, the stuff he's doing is getting right now but like just seems like a lovely fellow and he's brilliant here he's brilliant not only as uh, being this guy with sort of charisma and um and a sort of lively sort of jokey uh, effortless air about him but then later in the film he's also really effective being angry like low-key sort of broiling anger within within yeah. him as he starts to become more and more aware of the huge disparity that he's having to live with between his own station and that of the people that he's effectively working for because i mean the film is that isn't it the film is about working for other people and this dynamic between the uh, employer and the employee, I guess, if you will, right? And I think that's the thing that really drew me into the film, is not only thinking about the individual interactions between the characters, but like how that reflects so many dynamics that exist within not just Korean society, but society, at least capitalist society at large, right? 
yeah no absolutely and i think yeah i complete completely agree with that and you know as you said there's yeah like the, it is on its, its surface it does appear to be like you could take this film in many ways but this is what bong joon ho as you mentioned before does very very well so um yeah to- totally totally on board with that like there is there is obvious there is an obvious sort of overture to this is about class this is about the class war and how the rich look down on the poor and the you know the, the that well-trodden well-trodden um class study if that makes sense but there, as you say there's there's more there's more going on to it for yeah sure. and i mean then you know looking down on the the poorer people is, is an element for sure there's also this uh, sort of um visual metaphor i guess or a visual feature of the film which is about rain and water and rainwater yeah. traveling downhill and not only the rainwater itself but all the uh, incumbent like dirt and filth that gets caught up in that water and then shuttled down to whoever's at the bottom of the hill. Uh, And this, in I think, other hands could be heavy-handed, but here it isn't. I mean, when we get, and it's not, I'm not going to walk into spoiling anything, but when we get the uh, adverse weather conditions, really bad weather conditions towards the end of the film, you notice the disparity between the two families, where one family is so uh, put upon and inconvenienced that they had to cancel their camping trip in favour of a garden party. Which is awful, yeah. I mean, for them to deal with. And on the other hand, you've got the uh, poorer family, the Kims, looking at possibly the loss of all of their personal possessions and their home. So it, it, it's so well um, staged that you're, you don't have to be forced to understand what's going on, I think, to get a very good sense of, of these thematic things kind of coming together, right? No, absolutely. And I think that's that's kind of what separates a good filmmakers from great filmmakers at times is that everything in this film is deliberate. Mm. Like there is the, like if you could like there's nothing have nothing's left to chance. Like you might think, oh, they've just it's a see like it's raining, but there's always oh, a reason for it. As you say, there's a reason for it to be raining. There's a reason the water run down the hill. There's a reason. There's a reason to everything mm. here. Um nothing is yeah. left to chance. Nothing's there's yeah. there's a reason also very clearly why the garden party towards the end of the film is Red Indian themed or Native American. American themed and this yeah absolutely yeah this kind of um invasion uh this sense of invasion uh occupation and also like original rights is very sort of um front and center in terms of the concerns of the film at that point I I think right and then just like at a very relatable level it made me at least Paul think about the things that I do for money and I don't mean that in a strange way it's gonna sound more seedy now that I've said it out loud but what I mean is like I don't know about you but watching the film does make you think a little bit more about what's your dynamic when it comes to the people that employ you or how much would you do to give yourself a financial foot up to get to the next Mm. rung of the ladder to to clamber up I heard a thing today when I was researching this film about uh, Bong gave a quote that was something like he wanted to call the song. Ah, yeah, that's it. The song that's played at the very end of the film is performed by the son from the Kim family, the poorer family. Okay. And uh, yeah. it's called uh, something like Soju One Shot, with Soju being the, the popular alcohol in South Korea, right? Yeah. But he wanted to call it, I think it is... 564 years 
And the reason is something right. like 564 years. And the reason is because he did this calculation, this kind of depressing calculation, that that is the number of years that the son would have to work in the film towards the end when he decides he's going to become wealthy enough to buy a luxurious yeah. property. That's how many years he'd have to work to get to that level of society, 564 years, which wow. really slaps you around the face when you, yeah. when you <laughs> yeah. lock that into everything else that you've seen with Parasite. So, man, it's like... It's like I think Snowpiercer is also, and actually I would argue quite a lot of Bong Joon-ho's uh, output is, it's quite an angry film, but it's never a yeah. film that loses its head within having those feelings. Like, it never loses focus. As you said, like, everything is in place and just so for a reason. This is never... But yeah, there's... Yeah, yeah I was just going to finish by saying it's never a director who gets so carried away in, you know, smashing you around the face with his points or, or just venting that he loses that sort of careful focus on the elements of his particular uh, production, his diorama that he's created here. Yeah, I mean, this kind of feels like it, this uh, in some ways feels like it could have been the subject matter that it's approaching is almost like early Ken Loach, really. And like we talked about like the way that this this doesn't hammer you over the head. Like the, like this is the problem I've had with a lot of recent Ken Loach output is it does just kind of slap its message around your face constantly for the entirety of the film. And that can get tiresome. This doesn't mm. like it's so subtle in making its point. Like it, it, it's brilliant. It's just a brilliant piece of work. Interestingly, also, I've heard that the director... Um, after the release of the film has said that actually in terms of the English titling he thinks it may have been better to call the film Parasites um, and I think this was something that maybe if you've thought about it is clear anyway yeah, I can I can see that yeah but... because obviously the initial thought is oh the parasite or parasitic family here are the poorer family who are basically trying to get as much out of the wealthy family as they can hmm. through any means necessary really I mean they'll say anything pretend to be anything or almost do anything to try to get a little bit of extra money but at the same time, the ultimate parasites here might be the Park family, who are the ones who are essentially leeching off capitalist society mm. and the working class, the, the underclass, the people who, you know, clean their home and clean up their mess. So, um, yeah, well, and of course, we can't mention too much about them. But there is also another relationship which connects with the two families in a yes. rather interesting way. <laughs> uh, and you could argue that those people are original parasites as well, you know. So there's an awful lot going on with this film and it can be enjoyed on multiple levels, I think. And I think that's a lot or that goes a long way towards explaining why it's achieved the acclaim that it's achieved. Right. As you were saying, it separates good from great directors when you can pack something so full of meaning and message, but at the same time, make something that is straight up enjoyable for a wide audience. Yeah, a hundred percent, a hundred percent agree with you on that one, and that's I think what what Bong Joon Ho, Bong Joon Ho does incredibly well. He makes like thought provoking art house subject matter, but he mixes it with a kind of with a more commercially enjoyable style, I would say. Um, and that you know, and that he does that very very well. Like Okja was that Okja was that Snowpiercer is that like in, well go all the way back. Like that's that's what he does, yeah. and that's that's why he's and he's very very good at yeah. it. Yeah, and and Paul, you mentioned Okja. I mean, think about we talked about it on the show at the time. Remember the the. Very very sort of closing sequences in the abattoir in Okja. Like, 
Oh, it's, it's horrendous, yeah, and it'll, it'll <laughs> yeah. wreck you, that stuff. And you know exactly what he's talking about and exactly what he's angry about and exactly his concerns. But then you can almost forget those things and focus on, you know, zany performances, uh, exhilarating chase sequences like you get in Okja and so on. Mm. So, yeah, a, a director working on sort of multiple levels in such an effective way. And this guy's Bong Joon-ho's now, I think, 50 years old. So... He's nowhere near the end of his career, so we no. could see many, many a more, uh, many more Bong Joon Ho joints over the next few years. That, that I, yeah, for one, I can't can't wait for honestly. No, I completely agree. As I said, well deserving Best Picture winner, and uh, it will it will certainly go down as one of the best films of twenty twenty for sure. Yeah, and and I think I'm right in saying. Correct me if I'm wrong, Paul. This is the first Korean Academy Award nominated film, and it won Best Picture. Yeah, it's amazing. Astounding. Astounding. <laughs> yeah. So as far as our two features this week go, I mean, our second one is really going to have a bit of an uphill battle on its hands to be uh, gushed over in the way that Parasite has been. But we will do our best to give it a fair crack of the whip. Right after this, we're going to be back with our review of Birds of Prey. So yeah, this is Birds of Prey that we're going to talk about next. Um, people will probably be aware of this one because it's been advertised heavily everywhere. And it's a comic book film starring Margot Robbie as Harley Quinn. Uh, she reprises her role from the fucking awful Suicide Squad. Um, yeah, Pete, set this one off for us. <laughs> so the easy setup for this one is that um, Harley Quinn or Harleen Quinzel um, has broken up. At the beginning of the film, we find out that she's broken up with the Joker, or more so it seems like the Joker has broken up with her. She's putting a sort of brave face on it, but she's basically heartbroken and a bit of a mess. But because she's Harley Quinn, she's going to act out in ways that maybe others wouldn't. In her case, this involves um, sort of driving a, a chemical truck into a chemical plant or a truck no that's not right a truck full of fuel into a chemical plant yeah petrol tanker into that's a chemical it plant. yeah causing a massive yeah. uh, chain of explosions that destroys a large area of gotham city and from this point on she is going to try to sort of rebuild her life and comes into contact with a disparate group of female heroes of a sort who eventually uh, circuitously end up uh, uh, referencing themselves as the birds of prey. Before we get into our thoughts on the film, here's a little clip. I want to kill you because without the Joker around, I can. For all your noise and bluster, you're just a, a silly little girl with no one around to protect her. Oh, wait. What? Don't kill me. Ah, right. No, 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 seriously. Rami, Rami. Come on, this is going to be something, something we can figure out. Hey. Wait, wait, you lost something, right? You lost something, I heard you say it. A diamond. Yeah. I can help you find it. Seriously. I know the East End better than anybody. You want this diamond back? I'm your gal. So, as I mentioned before, this is the follow-up to Suicide Squad. So, I my anticipation wasn't massive, massive for this, to be honest, because I didn't like Suicide Squad. Although Margot Robbie, I think, as we mentioned last week, was definitely one of the highlights of that otherwise stinking turd of a film. Um, but less about that and more about Birds of Prey. Um, coming out of the gate, I, I think I quite liked it. 
I'm going to open there. <laughs> yeah. Do you know something? Maybe this, Review over. Yeah, maybe this can, can kick us off a bit. Like, um, I heard that Margot Robbie pitched Birds of Prey halfway through her Comic-Con appearance for Suicide Squad. This, oh, wow. to okay. me, like that little anecdote speaks to why it is that this woman who is all of, what, like 30-odd? has risen at such a rate because she seems to be sort of two or three steps ahead of the game. She here Mm. is not just an actress. She's not just parroting somebody else's lines. She is a producer, exec producer on this project. She's had a massive hand creatively in the vision for Harley Quinn as a character and for the way the story took shape for this movie. So I think that when you mentioned, Paul, about the fact that we're bouncing from Suicide Squad to this, it's important to make that distinction and separation that this is entirely really its own thing. I mean, I think Margot Robbie had very little say in what she got to do with the character in that film clearly had enthusiasm for the character but then has taken that particular ball and really run with it with this project here so yeah it's it's so interesting to me to see the strides that she's making in the industry and you know this isn't you know necessarily the most groundbreaking movie of all time but at the same time it's got a distinctive sort of flair about it that i really appreciated from the the very outset where you see that the harley quinn character is basically obsessed with a breakfast sandwich and we have a whole, yeah. whole action sequence <laughs> where she's trying to get the first bite of her i mean that sandwich that that sandwich did look banging yeah 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 she really really <laughs> wants that sandwich and she's going to go through sort of hell and high water to try and get a bite of that sandwich it doesn't work out so well at that point in the movie but uh, yeah there's a flair there's you know the sequence where she goes and uh, and sort of takes on an entire police station using what seems to be some kind of glitter shotgun uh it seems like a bean i think it's beanbag glitter beanbag right. isn't it or something that she's nice using, but yeah but yeah this this kind of flairiness about the character that puts it um quite at quite a distinct separation from it's Kathy Yan on directorial duties here isn't it have you seen any of her films before uh... I'm looking at her at the moment we've got something called Dead Pigs which I've not seen and according to my mother, which I haven't seen either of those no films, I remember fairness. before when we did um, when so... we did the preview I looked her up and I thought great that they've got a female director on board I don't know much about this particular female director so um yeah no is my answer to that yeah but no I, I would agree it's certainly got it's certainly got a flair to it it's got a visual style that I think it, it's it feels fresh it feels a bit different from everything else we've seen in the DC the DC EU which I think is a good shout and in, in terms of what DC are doing making these separate films that kind of stand stand on their own um yeah, I thought it, it looked nice. It had a fun energy to it. And what I think I quite enjoyed it as well because it was unapologetically sweary and violent. Mm. Um, there's a lot of F-bombs being dropped. Ewan McGregor's clearly having a great time as the as a black mask. And actually, I quite uh, Ewan McGregor's not an actor I always enjoy in everything that he's done, but I thought he was having... He, I thought he did a decent turn here on villain duties. Mm. Um, slight criticism. I don't think all the action scenes were as well handled as they could have been. Um, some of the fight... It's difficult to put my finger on which scenes it was. Some of the fight scenes felt a little bit flat to me um but not that they were bad i just think they could have been a little bit better where do you stand on that Is um that... I, yeah I, maybe i mean i loved uh little touches the uh touch with uh gunshots and cocaine and then harley quinn being sort of su- yeah, that was super great. powered yeah. by a sort of dust cloud yeah. of cocaine <laughs> yeah. was was a lot of fun and a lot of just like Horrible, like you said, Paul. Like this is a fifteen certificate over here, I think. And of course, quite um, it was quite well publicised that we had a twelve A certificate for Suicide Squad, mm. which was bizarre. I mean, um, 
Margot Robbie has addressed this directly, talking about what a limitation that was, because you had fight sequences, but you couldn't show any wet blood in Suicide yeah. Squad. Whereas here you can. I mean, there's the moment early on where Harley Quinn's in the, the strip joint and she sort of two foot jump injures a guy, <laughs> yeah. snapping both his legs from above, which is the kind of thing that just wouldn't have been allowed in the previous outing of this character. So yeah, that was essential and I'm really glad it was here. Incidentally, man, uh, the writer here, because I'm talking a lot about Margot Robbie, is a woman called Christina Hodson. Christina Hodson, a few things. Stay with me. First one, she wrote a film that I remember you really enjoying called Shut In. Oh, yeah, shit in. <laughs> yes, <Yeah. laughs> exactly. But also, on the other hand, a film that I think you genuinely did like, she wrote Bumblebee. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, I love Bumblebee. So, uh, with with almost all of my heart. <laughs> yeah, so a bit of uh, calibre there. And Excuse me, she's working on the screenplay for a Batgirl movie, it says here. So, okay. yeah, we'll see what comes of that. But, yeah, I think, I don't know, man. Like I feel quite quite positive towards Birds of Prey. I don't know that there's that much that I could sort of pick holes in in terms of my expectations going into sort of any comic book movie I know that on this show and in life I'm not always the biggest comic book adaptation guy but I mean when you get the group together Paul when you get your Rosie Perez older sort of um, died in the wool detective who's going to join up with the crew and give a bit of age diversity to this group of heroes. Uh, you've got Mary Elizabeth Winstead, who you don't really see in this kind of movie, I don't think. I mean, obviously in uh, Scott Pilgrim, but otherwise... I thought she was great in this. Yeah. I thought her performance was... Yeah, I thought she was She was one of the other highlights, I think. Really good, yeah. Trying to name herself and then sort of taking herself yeah. very seriously, <laughs> but not being taken that seriously. Uh, really good. And stand out for me, man. I thought journey smollett bell was awesome in this film a really good yeah. black canary uh who is of course the sister of the guy who had that whole controversy around jesse yeah, smollett, jesse smollett yeah. uh, around the the possible attack or not attack uh, ah, yeah. i found one paul i found one which performance do you think i didn't like as much that we haven't mentioned yet or maybe you mentioned uh you're McGregor? McGregor, man like see i i, I liked him in this but yeah, I can see. I can see why people don't he, like him. He had he had a really good time. I just I don't think I found him to be sort of a compelling villain. Like I don't find him scary, even when he's doing inherently when he puts on black mask as his character is called his alter ego. I kind of I didn't really I didn't really buy it, uh, which was a shame. But he's having a good time, man. He's definitely having a good time. Yeah, no, I think overall I'd, I'd fun with it. Like, I can't really, as I said, the, you know, as I mentioned earlier, I don't think all the action scenes were as good as they could have been, but it certainly doesn't harm the film. It's got an energy about it that, that superhero films don't always have. And yeah, unapologetically sweary and violent and all the better for it. So yeah, I would check this one out. I had a good time. Nice. Um, yeah, and I guess the next female-fronted superhero movie must be Wonder Woman 1984, probably, right? Yes. Which is this summer... So it will be this yeah i'm not sure when but yeah summer, it's definitely yeah. this summer so, i've yeah. seen the trailer at the cinema it must be relatively soon so yeah look forward to that yeah, it's a great trailer. the 80s stuff looks really cool in the trailer i think so uh we'll see how that goes and i mean i guess to close this out paul given what you've said and fairly positive stuff you've said about birds of prey can i assume that you're down for another margot robbie as harley quinn movie 
Yes, I know she signed up. She signed up for James Gunn's take on Suicide Squad, which I'm very excited about because that that is a director well suited to that project for sure. Um, yeah, I'd see I'd see another I'd see another standalone Harley Quinn movie for sure. Nice. Well, in that case, uh, we'll put a uh, line under this review of Birds of Prey. Maybe we'll talk of it in the future. Maybe we won't. Maybe we'll have forgotten about it by next week's show. But Paul, uh, if I'm not mistaken, when we come back after the break, we're going to do something a little bit romantic, are we not? Uh, when you word it like that, uh, hopefully not. But <laughs> uh, yes, we are going to count down our top five uh, romantic scenes as it is Valentine's Day uh, tomorrow. So we are back with a uh, hastily put together Valentine's themed top five. Do you see what we've done? We always stay relevant. Um, We wanted to count down not the top five romantic movies, because I think absolutely everybody's doing that at this time. And I think we've done that. I think we've done that. I think you're right, Paul. I think we have done that before. So instead, we're going to go for romantic scenes, scenes that stayed with us, scenes that we found particularly romantic. Now, my list is relatively threadbare, Paul. I'm going to be completely honest and upfront with you, but I'm looking forward to talking about them so do you want to kick off what have you got at number five I'll kick off at number five you'll have to forgive how i've described some of these scenes because it's quite difficult to describe you know scenes don't always have a title to them so at number five i've got the princess a scene from the princess bride which is the princess buttercup i love you monologue um delivered incredibly well um and absolutely gets me every time i see it i mean i love the princess bride i think it's a it's a great film uh, it's very very funny in places it's very very heartfelt but this scene so adds a surprising amount of emotional heft to it um for sure so yeah the i love you monologue from princess bride is my number five so i don't know that my five are in any particular order which is a bit of a cop-out but i'll I'll kick (laughs) off with this at number five is the sequence that we'll call married life not least because that's the piece of music that plays at this time this is the opening montage from the film up which, to be honest, could have been my number one on this countdown. Uh, This is music that I used, or that we, my wife and I, used at our wedding. And it's the sequence in which the central character in Up has this sort of montage flashback of the progression of his relationship with his wife, who is no longer with him. I was a mess by the time this sequence had finished. And I think... I was in bits as well, yeah. (laughs) I think as much as I really like the film Up, I think it's such a strong opening that the rest of the film kind of couldn't live up to that to that level maybe quite um but yeah this sequence married life is is gorgeous and when we've talked about it before i i also mentioned that thing um firewatch which is a video game that sets up with yeah, it's incredible perhaps video, not it? as romantic of a uh, sort of uh, in this case written montage of, of sort of lines and backstory but very very affecting in in a very sort of similar way so yeah married life from up is my number five romantic scene or sequence what have you got a four paul uh, number four, I've got uh, a scene from when Harry met Sally, uh, where Harry finally proclaims his feelings. Um, people, I imagine everyone's familiar with that scene. It's great. Billy Crystal's great in this film. And when Harry met Sally is a great film. And is this the speech I read at your wedding? The uh, the speech in question being the when you've realised, when you've met the person you want to spend the rest of your life with. Yes. One. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Yeah, there it is. Yeah, there we go. So there we go. That's the other reason I was familiar with this. I was like, I just just remind myself of the day. And I was like, I've read this out loud. Yeah, yeah, in front of an <laughs> so, audience. Um, yeah, absolutely. So yeah, when Harry met Sally, uh, when Harry proclaims his feelings, that's what I've called that scene now. And that's what it should be called forever. <laughs> nice. <laughs> 
At number four for me, uh, I have, I, I'm going to sort of shoehorn in two bits here, Paul. They're from the same movie. Uh, I will call these Touching Hands and Take One for Your Girlfriend. Both of them from Buffalo 66, one of my favourite indie-ish kind of movies of all times, probably. Uh, this is this movie where Vincent Gallo uh, uh, kidnaps the Christina Ricci character and basically forces her to masquerade as his girlfriend, which doesn't sound particularly romantic. But over the course of the film, it seems as though feelings change, feelings develop, there are complicated feelings involved. involved. And at a point late in the film, the two of them lie in a motel room bed or more so on a cheap motel room bed but Vinnie G at this point is still the sort of awkward unromantic uh, unexpressive character that we've got to know through the course of the film and then he uses a sequence of sort of um, edits jump edits which show that eventually they reach gradually and inch by inch and touch hands in the middle of the bed which I really really liked and really appreciated <laughs> and then at one point he realizes oh there's a romantic feeling shit I've got to run for the hills he goes to leave and she's almost pleading with him you are going to come back though you are going to come back tell me you're going to come back you're not going to run away and he leaves and he goes to order her a hot chocolate and he asks for it to be as hot as possible because she really likes hot chocolate. And just as he's about to leave the place, he sees that there's a guy sitting on his own. He asks him whether that guy has a girlfriend. And then he buys a heart-shaped cookie for that man to give to his girlfriend. And he says, I don't know why that's for your girlfriend. And I know there are people who think that character is irredeemable and is a dick and shouldn't get the romance that it seems like might be on the horizon. But... I found that sequence really romantic and really affecting and really touching. So fuck it. That's my number four. Uh, number three. I mean, I nearly put the whole film in, to be honest, as one scene, because this film absolutely breaks me every time I watch it. This is Brokeback Mountain. Um, and this, the scene in question is the closing scenes where he is, Heath Ledger's character is looking back and fondly remembering his relationship. And then he opens the, the cupboard door and he's got both of their shirts kind of intertwined together on the door. And you're just like, it was, it was just, there was just floods of tears, almost as much tears as there was when I saw Dark Knight Rises in IMAX, but we won't go into that. Um, uh, yeah, and then the like the the soundtrack the soundtrack to Brokeback Mountain is incredible. The film I think is incredible. It's one of my favourite romantic stories of all time for sure. Um, and yeah, the the way the music then sort of ups the the music sort of hits, and then yeah, in bits, absolute bits. Um, but yeah, um, any of any scene of that film probably could have gone in. To be perfectly honest, I love Brokeback Mountain. I think it's a great film. Yeah, the the bit that gets me, I think, most of all in Brokeback Mountain is that Heath Ledger when he sort of like angrily, sort of almost violently breaks down on his own by a wall. Yeah. If that if that rings <laughs> a bell, uh, particularly strong. Uh, number three for me is what I'm gonna call. Uh, I have a love in my life. Uh, this is from the P.T. Anderson movie Punch Drunk Love and the character at the centre is uh, played by Adam Sandler and he is uh, going to confront Mattress Man, a man played by <laughs> Philip Seymour Hoffman who has wronged him um, in, a, in a way that he he doesn't appreciate and uh, at the point of confrontation he is threatened with violence by mattress man philip seymour hoffman who's this sort of greasy sleazy fairly intimidating character and just at the point where you think he might run away he might be too scared because that's what he's done his whole life as he lives this kind of henpecked existence bullied by his own sisters and emasculated at every turn he faces up to the guy 
And he says, I have a love in my life. And that's a stronger power than you could ever know. And so uh, I want to say to you, let's say that's that. And, and just decides to like, yeah, as I say, face down this guy. And all he's got as fuel is no athletic ability, is no fighting skill, but it's the fact that he loves someone. And to me, you can't get a lot more romantic than that. So that's my pick for, what are we now? Number two? Number three. Yes. No, number three. No, number three for me. Yeah. So my number two uh, is the first kiss from Before Sunrise, um, the, the first film in the Richard Linklater before trilogy, as I guess you, you could call it. Um, and again, this is one of those. This is one of those series of films that almost there's so many moments across all three films that could have that certainly could have made this list. But this for me, maybe yeah, maybe it's a bit maybe it's a bit of a lazy pick going for the first kiss. But like the conversation they have is very very touching near the Ferris wheel. The location's fantastic. Um, and yeah, Julie Delpy and Ethan Hawke are, are both incredible performances in this film and they are one of my favorite trilogies i would say is the before trilogy so yeah again it could have been any scene from these films i think when we talked about favorite romantic films of all time i think this might have come up top of my list in fairness um but yeah it's a great scene in, in a great series of films <coughs> excuse me that's my number two before i cough myself to death you, you were getting a bit choked <laughs> up that's what it was i was yeah. Uh, yeah. number two for me is a movie that yeah now you mention it may well have been on the top five romantic picks for, for me in terms of films anyway uh, this one is directed by a then very, very young Sarah Polly, the Canadian actress and, and film director that I like a great deal and I can't wait for her next stuff. But uh, this film is away from her. And the reason why I find this to be such a romantic film and in particular a scene so romantic is often I think what resonates with me in terms of romance is less so about young people who are experiencing romance for the first time often when you read these lists it's sort of like young love blossoming and I completely appreciate that but when you've got people who've spent years decades together and still have that love for one another and that bond with one another I don't know that I can find much in life more affecting than that and in a way from her the title refers to the fact that having spent some decades together as a married couple, the central couple who are now, I would say, in their 70s are going to be separated because one of them has to go into assisted living for a period of time. And so they have this sequence late at night, it's sort of moonlight outside, it's shadowy. I think they're sitting at a kitchen table and they're talking about what it's going to be like to be away from each other after all this time and reminiscing on the times they were almost away from each other, but then they weren't in the past. Man, like, yeah. It, it it's this and it's films like Iris um, if you know that one as well films about the separation of people who have been in love for decades I think a, a, a gorgeous romantic and, and also heartbreaking um, just finally on Away From Her there's a sequence in it look it up on YouTube it's brilliant and I think it's there where a guy in the sort of nursing home assisted living home does a sort of um, ESPN style sports commentary on an old man walking down a corridor and it is tremendous um, but yeah that's my number two pick the film is Away From Her and it's the sequence of separation in that film Cool. My number one pick is the uh, pillow scene from Moore. No, it's not really. Uh, I just wanted to throw that in as a, as a little bit of a, a Hanukkah-based joke there, which has fallen completely flat. So my um, my actual number one pick is uh, it's something you've already mentioned today, Pete, which is the uh, the opening montage from Up. 
Um, and you did an incredible job of describing it. But yeah, I'm, I'm totally with you on the fact that this the opening montage is so strong um, that the rest of the film can't live up to it. As much as I, I don't dislike Up as, as a film in general, but like it's so good. And I was it literally in tears within five minutes of the film starting. I'm just like, this isn't supposed to happen. And then you kind of look left in the cinema. You look right. You look in front of you. You look behind you. Everyone's fucking crying at this point. Like it's it just... It's such a lovely scene, but it's devastating at the same time. Just, yeah, it's it's one of the finest opening scenes, to, I think, to any film I've seen, in all honesty. It's just a, such a good scene. Yeah, it, I mean, it's that, though, like, linking with the away from her thing. It's like when you've got the weight of years, a life mm. lived, two lives lived, and all yeah. that that means and all of those shared experiences, there's so, to me, there's always so much more weight to that than, like, two people met and liked each other quite a lot and might end up being in a romance, you know, which is often pick those things are picked out as most romantic scenes. Having said all that, Paul, my number one pick kind of is one of those. And it's one that you've mentioned. Look at this. Uh, it, it is, and it kind of had to be, didn't it? The sequence that you explained from when Harry met Sally, um, not least because, uh, as you quite rightly said, it was a reading and it was a reading that you did at my wedding. And the idea, uh, the idea behind, I I guess having that reading at the wedding is this thing about realizing at a certain moment that you want to spend the rest of your life with a person and wanting the rest of your life to start as soon as possible which is the line that is uh, delivered and I think for me that's so important in my own life because I spent so much of my life feeling that I heard people say oh, uh, I want to spend my life with this person. I will love this person forever. And these kinds of things almost sounded like platitudes to me, like unrelatable things. And I think then having met the person that I'm now married to, it was the first and only time where I genuinely had this feeling like, hey, what are we waiting for? Let's get married. Let's go. Let's do this. I have no hesitation. So for that reason, I mean, what else could I put above that in a list like this? So uh, when Harry Met Sally goes to number one for me in most romantic scenes of all times. And to be honest, Paul, if we'd had more prep time on this one, I think we probably both would have had a bit more of, div of diversity in terms of like uh, different eras of filmmaking perhaps but what we've put together I yeah think no I, I think I think that's I think that's fair there's another one that pops into my mind I've completely forgotten the name of the film now the Alfred Molina John Lithgow film with the the elderly gay oh, couple love is film. strange love is strange yeah there's moments in that film that I think if I'd had a little bit more time to prep or that probably moments in that film that may have crept in as well mm. um and again that comes back to the kind of weight of years thing you yeah were talking and, about, so. and one that I didn't put in because it would feel like kind of recency bias but I would make a fairly strong case for at least one or two of the scenes from Queen and Slim, which is out now. Even though I think it's an imperfect film, it's kind of a flawed mm. movie. Man, there are some romantic parts in that film, though. Let me be there your legacy. You there, already yeah. are. Um, yeah, that was incredible. Yeah, yeah. Fa fantastic. <laughs> they both look amazing. Check it out. Uh, that brings us to the end, then, of our top five, which means we've only got credits to roll here, Paul. Let's roll some credits. What do you want to give credit to this week, other than uh, Cough Medicine? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I've just this, this. You can see this here. There's like a squirting bottle. I don't know. I assume there was water in it. I've just drunk it. Just drunk from it, and it was water. So hopefully, I live to see another day. But it was a gamble. But I had to stop coughing. Um, so I want to pay credit to this um, this squirty drinks bottle. No, not really. Um, I want to pay credit this week to um, believe it or not, Adam Sandler. Um, not just because he was incredible in Uncut Gems, but. I was lucky enough, and it's on YouTube, so I implore everyone to watch his acceptance speech for Best Actor at the Indes Independent Spirit Awards. 
It's one of the things that's made me laugh the most in a very long time. It's amazing. He skewers himself. Uh, he skewers the Oscars. Um, and it's just great. It's, it skewers the Safety. His jokes about the Safety brothers are, are on point. He reads the whole thing in a funny voice, which just adds something to it. Um, and you can see the audience are in stitches as well. It's brilliant. Absolutely watch it. It's probably uh, the best uh, the best acceptance speech I've seen in many a year. So definitely check it out. Nice. Nice. Uh, yeah, a bit of a left field one for me, but I wanted to get this one out there in credit. So my credit this week goes to a YouTuber, Paul, a YouTuber. And this YouTuber <laughs> goes by the name Man NYC. I'll spell it. It's X-I-A-O man and then NYC as in New York City, right? So this guy is a kind of fairly dorky looking, fairly awkward fella. He's probably in his late 20s, maybe. And I watched one of his videos kind of by accident. I think uh, I was at home alone. It popped up as a recommendation. I watched it and I've become a little bit obsessed with this guy. So his deal, and it seems appropriate in a week where Parasite won best film at the Oscars. Uh, in this case, we're not dealing with Korean. We're dealing with Chinese. He's an American white guy who has studied Chinese from, I think, the age of about 16 or 18 years of age. So for about 10 years, he's been studying Chinese. And he basically, in his videos, walks around New York City, going to places like Chinatown, Chinese restaurants, nail bars, different places where he will interact with Chinese speakers. But what he does, which initially seems a bit gimmicky, is he doesn't tell people that he is fluent in Chinese. So he'll just oh, okay. sort of settle in <laughs> and then suddenly he'll spit an order for his food, which is flawless Chinese. And you see these incredible reaction shots around the room of Chinese speakers like, what the fuck has just happened? How has <laughs> this guy understood what the order is and then expressed it so clearly? And then he uses this in ways like he goes to a nail bar and he just lets people think that he's like a dumb American. I think he has an I love New York t-shirt on. And, right, okay. and then as the uh, girls are doing his nails, they start speaking about him taping and they say like, this guy must be crazy. What a loser. And they start like talking about him in Chinese. And then he just mentions, but very gracefully, oh, actually, I, I can speak Chinese, but not in like a kind of gotcha hidden camera type way in a way where he starts to like build these bridges with people that he meets and really takes an like a genuine interest in their culture, their background, their history, their families. Man, I like the guy a lot. Check him out. <laughs> Zhao Man NYC on YouTube. Uh, honestly, he'll put out a video and in a week, he'll do 2 million views. Easy. Wow. Okay. It's incredible. I'm intrigued now. Incredible stuff. I'm intrigued. Anyway, that is my credit for the week, Paul. Apart from that, I guess it's uh, contact details and we're out of here, right? Yeah, absolutely. So that's that's the end of the show. Thanks for listening. You can get hold of us at Stranger Cinema on Twitter, at Stranger Cinema on Instagram and Facebook, and StrangerCinema at gmail.com if you want to email the show for any reason. Uh, please like and share the show if you are enjoying it. It always helps to get it out to a wider audience. But that is it for this week. We'll be back next week, certainly with a feature review of Emma, and I might force Pete to go and watch Sonic the Hedgehog, but we will see. Yeah, you can try. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Goodbye. Shut up and sit down.